0: Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD and remember the truth will keep you safe
1: first i want to say thanks for allowing me to do this for you um you know we've had our relationship over the past what year and a half or so almost two years And, uh, you've supported the, you know, the podcast ventures that I've done and I truly do enjoy your show as well. And so I really wanted to do something to give back to that. And, uh, this is allowing me the opportunity to do that. So I I appreciate it.
2: And Hector, I, I appreciate, uh, that you're assembling this show and just, uh, you've helped me in the podcast community back when I was struggling with recording interviews literally on my phone, uh, to help me with understanding the technology. And, uh, I'm at 102 episodes. So I wouldn't be there without you. Thank you so much. You're very
1: welcome. All right. So let's, um, you know, you gave me a preview of the book and I thought it was an amazing book. And what I would really like the audience to know is kind of, how did you choose to become the safety dog? Like what, what events in your childhood, adolescence, and maybe young adulthood, as you made the decision to move into getting an education, a higher level education, getting your PhD, what were the events that led to you deciding that safety was going to be your expertise?
2: So I I replayed my childhood, and there really wasn't a significant um catastrophic or sentinel event, um, which uh, put me on this course to safety. So I had a a pretty typical childhood, although um, once I was in high school, I had leadership roles. I had keys to our brand new indoor swim center. I was coaching basketball, um, middle school basketball, so I had keys to the different gyms. So I always had leadership type roles and leadership, I think, is synonymous with school safety, being a school safety expert. Uh, I moved into the the college uh, world and, and that's when I became trained as a firefighter. Took courses I had an interest for a long time in firefighting. My grandfather was a fire chief back in the 1940s and and would tell you know these these awesome stories. So it intrigued me. And I was a student of firefighting. Like I, I got every magazine. I read all of the books. I knew backdraft, you know, all of these these different um, you know terms and in, in the science, and it just it, it was enthralling to me. And learning the systems, instant command system, how you communicate between different locations, and and back then, I mean, it was still um, pretty basic. You didn't have the GPS, the Garmin systems that all of the fire trucks have today, and the communication systems only went so far. Um, but that was that was really my first. Um, taste into being a, a responder or being somebody who's contributing to the safety community. And then it followed me into my first few jobs. I worked at a medical center, uh, worked at schools, and, and I seemed to always be the default person of, well, David knows safety, so David will do our presentations on um, our evacuation drills, fire drills, um, uh, things, things of that nature. And it was, a, it was a perfect fit, it was very natural. For me to give those presentations and so, how long
1: were you a firefighter or
2: I was a firefighter um, for about uh, about five years, and yeah i um, and, and the reason I stopped just was because we were moving um, you know my wife and I and then also looking at you know starting a family and things like that so there were there were just some competing uh, things that, that went with that. I loved it when I did it. And it, it provided me invaluable uh, information um, and, and insight. As I work now as a safety uh, professional, I can go back. It, it was funny in October. My youngest daughter and I went to the open house at the fire department, and they had their brand new engine, and they were showing it. and And I said to her, "You know, back in the day, the dad fought fires. Like we didn't have all of the nifty pre-hooked." you Know hose couplings and, and the lights to tell you how much water was in the tank. You know, you had somebody look down and, and, and with a flashlight or put a stick in, you know, and here's how much is left. I said, so, uh, you know, it was a little different back then, um, and just how, how much the technologies emerged, but uh,
1: and this was when but, in the uh, early 90s,
2: early 90s, yeah. Okay. yeah. early Early 90s. So, yeah, a lot of your apparatus, you know, would have been made in the 1970s. So um, and I love the show Emergency, the TV show Emergency from the 70s. I binge watched that once in college an entire weekend, like all of the episodes. So but yeah, I, I, I felt a strong interest as um, as I moved into school administration, my role coupled with school safety as a director of student services. It's a, it's a pretty natural fit. And then also my responsibility was was to ensure the safety of students with disabilities. So you have to think if you're evacuating a school for any reason, um, how do you make sure that students with disabilities uh, can safely participate in that? If they have medications, how are the medications making it out of the building um, to the evacuation site? So then, you know, I, I really started to increase my awareness of school safety seeking out more training, um, it, it just became, it, it kind of became who I was. It was the default of David is, David is the safety guy and, and I embraced that. So that went, you know, well into the early, um, you know, two thousands for me. Mm-hmm.
1: And so you seem like a very analytical person, especially throughout the episodes the a hundred plus episodes that you have now. So, uh, just to jump back a little bit into the the firefighter piece, did you find that you were looking into like fire science and things like that, like, you know, how <laughs> how uh, what fuels a fire and things like that? You seem like the kind of guy that would kind of logically break down all the different pieces of what a fire would be, and then kind of learn about that.
2: I did, and and I actually would always score the top in my class uh, with that because I. I remember we we had a training and it was about arson. So they they set up a burn site and I went back to it uh, later and I just um, went through everything to to make sure that I fully understood the burn pattern. And it even came down to like needles on an adjacent pine tree of looking which way the needles would shift uh, due to heat. And then, you know, to kind of give you a direction of where the, the fire source had started. But I subscribed to every magazine, uh, firefighter magazine that there was. And I would go through every article. And this was before the Internet. Um, so you're really getting your your information from there. But that and then just understanding the apparatus and what everything was used for and just talking and listening to people who had done this for years and, and soaking all of that in. But, yeah, very, um, very analytical. I would study fire hydrants. And I, even to this day, as I go through town, or different communities. I mean, I know how much water pressure you can bring out of a hydrant that's red versus green versus yellow. And in Wisconsin winters, if you bring, um, in my hometown in 1989, we had a huge fire downtown, uh, the biggest one ever in the community. And multiple fire departments responded, but um, they ran, they almost ran dry with the water tower. So it's the middle of winter and there's a river nearby. You'd have to go down to the river and start cutting through and running water up from the river. So I'm trying to figure out as that was going on, too. You know, this I, this is when I had an interest before I was a firefighter of how many trucks they'd have to pump this water up to the location. And, um, you know, people don't understand, too. You can in, in Wisconsin, if you pump too much water out of a water main, it can. Break it can collapse especially like I live in the second oldest community in the state so um yeah it is it's very analytical being able to quickly size things up and people have said I've had a good skill for that and actually I I do think any safety situation I can analyze rapidly. And make a determination on the best course of action. So I think that's a gift that, that I have.
1: So do you think so in your childhood, I think you had mentioned that you were kind of an in-between kid. You, you were not completely raised in the city and not completely raised on, on a farm, You're kind of in between, or you saw kind of the both wor- best of both worlds. Can you explain a little bit about how maybe that allowed you to analyze different situations even while you were growing up?
2: Absolutely. So I was fortunate that I was a kid that still had the 30 mile roaming range, uh, from home. And, you know, now we know that kids have a, a one mile range on average or about 300 yards in any direction. And that's kind of it. So in my community, which was small, you know, about 1200 people, we had a river. So my friends and I could go down fishing. We could go through the woods, um, and, didn't have cell phones so you you just did that and and how you told time was either by watch or you knew that they had the noon siren the fire siren and and you calibrate it by that but we also had a farm and my family was into farming ginseng which is a a specialty um it's a root that's sold uh, overseas but um i got i learned how to drive tractors so you know at 10 years old i'm driving different tractors and heavy machinery so, in that environment, you have to be extremely aware um, of what is happening around you and not um, only the people around you, but if if the you know the the roads kind of get muddy and you have the tractor that you know just for your personal safety. So it's a lot of responsibility. Um, so being able to to combine that with also you know the city, um, well, not city, but I mean a small community safety. Uh, I, th- I think really gave me that reconnaissance aspect, um, which, and I could get on my bike too. And we had a, a, a train track that went through town and with my friends, uh, sometimes you, if you follow the train track, of course it'd take you to the next town. So we could, we could go out for a day, you know, and walk the eight or nine miles to the next town over <laughs> and then hang out a little bit and then just follow the tracks back, um, but I attribute a, a lot of my childhood to having a very good reconnaissance um, experience and in different environments. Um, and, and we know that exploration is a type of safety exercise. So as I'm going, and we have a swinging bridge that goes across the river is you're, you're always assessing kind of your risk on these, because they all have risk and no one is supervising you. But, um, those, those experiences, which we're losing today, I mean, I don't know if we're losing, I think we've lost with, uh, with children, um, helped me to hone my situational awareness skills. Yeah, I think
1: um, as a parent, I constantly struggle with allowing my girls to explore, you know, beyond my comfort zone. Uh, and even though that's still a very, very small comfort zone that i have and when i was a kid you know we would travel like you said you know eight ten miles a day back and forth you know to different areas of the city and you know we'd be back before sundown and everything was good and get up the next day and on to it and nowadays it seems so scary to, to allow our kids to do that and, and the world is different I, I don't know if it's different in that we're more aware of things that are going on or you know, there's just more bad people in it, but but you're right. It, the exploration of our kids is significantly di- diminished their situational awareness because they're not able to do that reconnaissance like we used to do when we were younger.
2: Yeah, and and I talked about that in my uh, PBS presentation of just how important reconnaissance is, and if we can restore that to school safety, we we've done a lot, but no one is is going there we're just getting smaller and smaller in that Rome zone
1: so let's take it then so you you mentioned uh briefly that you became a school administrator so was this before or after or during the time that you went to college i guess your bachelor degree years
2: yeah so um i went to college and i had a bachelor's degree in communicative disorders and a master's degree in speech language and uh, practiced as a speech-language pathologist in a medical center for a few years, and then went to the schools for a few years, and then uh, became a school administrator in 2002, and held a school administrative role until 2014, when I accepted a fellowship at UW-Madison to go full-time into my PhD and study high-stakes uh, decision-making in military healthcare and education. And then after that, Things uh, changed because I, I really took on the consultant role because I was being asked to consult in districts expert um, witness work for legal firms. and that's where life kind of took me and teaching more at the postsecondary level. i've I've been a professor um, since two thousand thirteen. I've instructed over a hundred courses in school, superintendent legal issues, super um, or special education. Law inclusion things like that. So, um, so yeah, I, I had that. But I also worked at the Wisconsin School for the Blind, um, and and this was recent. I mean, I, I just retired. Um, so that experience was about four and a half years. And talk about sharpening um, your ability to identify accessible systems for safety. How do you teach safety to someone who's blind and has autism? Right. Uh, But you do like you can teach, you know, intruder drills and fire drills and things like that. So once I was able to interface, too, with that population, um, both adults and um, students, it allowed me to see um, how first most systems aren't accessible and how to also make them accessible. And if I could make them accessible there. I could probably make them accessible anywhere to anybody. And that was a huge plus professionally for me. to have that opportunity to work with people who were blind. Yeah.
1: And so you mentioned, um, that you got your master's in speech language. Yeah,
2: yeah I did. And then I went back and uh, got another master's degree in superior in, um, educational, uh, administration as well. So okay. I am,
1: and so yeah. I want to maybe go into this, the speech language, and you were working as a speech language pathologist there for a while. Is that right?
2: I was, yeah, about four years between uh, medical sector and then schools. So for the people yeah.
1: that don't know kind of what a speech language pathologist is, can you just kind of quickly explain what that is? And and, and I'm going somewhere with that, so I just want <laughs> want people to know okay. kind of what we're talking about with SLP.
2: So on the, me- on the medical side, um, a speech language pathologist will typically work um, with either articulation, which is sound production, um, or else uh, cognitive, you know, work with memory. Work with swallowing, dysphagia, um, and then also in, so speech language in the medical sector will work on articulation, work on cognition if somebody's had a a stroke uh, or traumatic brain brain injury, and also swallowing. Those are the big three areas. In schools, it's mostly articulation and language, expressive language. So the words that you're using to communicate, receptive language, the words that you're understanding. So, yeah, both of those settings that I I had worked in and I enjoyed, you know, both. But the school community, then you're also part of so many different school activities that are going on and. I I really enjoyed, you know, working with the different professions. And
1: so you worked with uh, school-aged kids as well as adults when you were doing uh, SLP, speech-language pathology? Yeah.
2: um, I, you know, worked with people um, who were 100 years old and, and, you know, uh, children who just turned age three. Yeah.
1: Great. Okay, because this is kind of, this is just me kind of putting pieces of the puzzle together for, you know, how someone becomes a safety expert or, you know, who becomes the safety doc. So if you look at your choice, your career choice there, or at least your scholastic choice there, uh, you're looking at communication, which is which is one of the fundamental principles of of safety, right? You have to be able to communicate kind of rules and principles and things like that. And then during a crisis, communication is key, right? As you've mentioned in your book, and and we'll get to that in a little bit. But it's interesting that you chose a profession that deconstructs. How we communicate, you know, in, in speech language pathologists, you're breaking right. down, you know, how they're pronouncing the enunciation. The, the, if they have barriers to getting the words out or constructing the words in a way that people can't interpret them and make sense of them, you actually help them get unstuck through those pieces. So, I mean, if you think about it, you're really de- deconstructing the ability to communicate and then trying to help that person reconstruct a way to do that. So I, I don't know if you were aware of that or or if that was a conscious decision for you to m- kind of move into that realm.
2: I, I hadn't thought about it that way. Um, I did think about it in the linguistics way. Um, James Fitzgerald of the FBI used the linguistics to determine that Ted Kaczynski was the Unabomber. So he studied um, the, the different samples of writing that he had. And linguistics is very closely associated with speech language um so but yeah i I hadn't thought about it with the with deconstructing and i believe you know that that's an accurate assessment and then also the the fundamental um need to make sure that your message is being uh clearly communicated and then understood and that you have a check for understanding And, and that's actually a big part of what i do when I work with um, school districts as a consultant is to work on the induction process or make sure that people understand when they come into a district, what the expectations are for school safety and that they demonstrate that they can say that back to me and they can, they can use an app or use a reporting device. Yeah. And
1: it's, it's really interesting that you chose that area to study because you're dealing with the mechanics of speech, right? The physical mechanics of speech and allowing a person to, overcome those physical limitations but also you're working with the uh psychological piece of it the uh, interpreting and understanding of it like you mentioned with the strokes and things like that so it's really a full circle uh in my mind a deep dive into how communication flows from the mechanics of speaking to the interpretation of what has been spoken so you know i'm, I'm, I'm I'm um, really. I didn't. I didn't know that about you. That's surprising to me. So uh, oh. I'm glad that we're able to bring this to the audience. That you know, I think that's one of the fundamental pieces that that you had in your life and the education that really contributed to becoming who you are today, and then uh, subsequently writing the book. And I think the way the book is written now, it makes perfect sense to me. How how clear it was and concise it was uh, for me reading that book. So, uh, you know, that makes a lot of sense for me. So I just wanted to highlight. Well, thanks. That. thanks. Okay. So, uh, so you, uh, got your ma- your two masters, and then, uh, one of them was in speech language pathology and one of them w- or speech language, and the other one was in a school administration, correct? And yes. at yes. that time, then you became a school administrator or during that time. Yes. Right. And then, yes. uh, the school that you were working for allowed you to work on your PhD during that time. Is that correct?
2: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They were, they were very accommodating. And then also, um, I did, you know, completely separate out from working as a school administrator. So I could, I could take advantage of the fellowship and have two years. That's, that's all I was doing is studying every day. Um, so it wasn't something on the side. It was just, that was my, my life when I picked up my PhD or my PhD out of Madison. And we also knew, Um, as a family, then, um, I probably wouldn't be returning to school administration because after I I obtained the PhD, it was either going to be a university role or to expand out the consulting that I was doing. So, um, yeah, but yeah, for two years though, it was, it was full time, you know, uh, up in the morning and just in, in books and research and meeting with people and in phone conferences and, um, and I'm glad that I did that. I'm I'm glad that I chose that route, even though it was a, a little nervous at the time because you never know how the landscape changes in school safety. And you're giving up an administrative position to fully devote your time into becoming an expert into something else. But it worked out really well. So
1: what is the technical focus term that, that you did your Ph.D. on? What is the, the focus?
2: Um, high stakes decision making um, in um, military education and school settings. So, really, looking what what are the what are the components that um, are involved in high stakes decision making? And one is like your own personal uh, bias and use of discretion. So, in um, for example, looking at the work of Steve Kastner, uh, who works with NASA and Top Gun. So, Top Gun pilots, how much discretion do they have um, to interpret or override practices versus like staying strictly to the the practices? Um, and in schools, it was amazing because discretion was significantly different building to building, even within the same district. I wrote about how, as I, w- I was going to districts, I went to one elementary school and every classroom, there was a baseball bat near the door. And I said, well, tell me about that. And they're like, that's in case somebody comes in. That's our intruder baseball bat. And I'm like, well, why, did, why aren't they at the other schools then? And, And it was site-based management, which most schools are. So the superintendent, you know, everyone could interpret and protect their schools as they saw fit as long as it adhered to policy. And there wasn't anything saying you couldn't use a bat. But we know like those types of things really aren't realistic. But that's what that school administrator, that principal thought needed to be done to keep that school environment safe. So, um, yeah, I was I was fortunate. Dr. Paul Rapp headed military medicine. Um, I remember watching him uh, on a, a chaos special on Nova. Uh, this was probably around 1990, and it was fascinating because um, I'll never forget he had he had images on the screen of heartbeats, and one was a a heartbeat where it was basically um, the heartbeat was was replicated one after another, so you could just overlay and it would be the same, and then. And then the other image was was all kind of jittery lines, you know, with a, with a heartbeat. And, and he said, so looking at these two images, if I was asked you, you know, the the viewer, which one is normal, what would you say? And the, the consensus was, you know, well, the one that looks like it's replicating in the same pattern would be be normal, right? Like that's. That's a that's a healthy heartbeat. He said, no, 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 no. That's like somebody about to go into a seizure or who is suffering like extreme like duress. Actually, for your heart to have this pattern, this more erratic pattern, this is normal. This is completely typical. Um, And so he helped me. So that was a bridge into he's an expert on chaos theory and chaos, of course, comes in with school safety um, situations and he helped me understand chaos theory. Then also we, we became friends and I would, um, talk to him, you know, we set up, uh, Skype calls and I would transcribe everything that he, that he would say. And then I would analyze it and make sure that I understood it. I was reading through his materials. He was sending me articles, um, terminology in, in the book, such as simulated annealing. And people would say, Oh my goodness, like, what does that mean? And, and is this really a technical book? And it's like um, simulated annealing. I thought the same thing when Paul um, shared it with me. I said, "I, I don't understand what that means." And he said, "Well, let me tell you. It's it's um, here's here's an analogy you can use in your book. It's it's a hiker who gets on a mountain, and they get halfway up, and they they get disoriented. They don't know where they are. So they have a choice. Um, they can either you know stay there, and probably nothing is going to happen, or they can go back down, which is injecting noise, or they can go up, which is injecting noise." So he said, this is simulated annealing. This is getting yourself to a different state of, of chaos. So he said, you know, but there's risk involved. So if you if you go up the mountain, maybe you've expended more calories and you realize I'm just higher up and there's nothing that I can see that helps me out. But there's also potential reward. Maybe you get up and you can see, oh, there's a village down there. So like now I know where to go. So he would help me bring the, the terminology to a level where um, I could grasp it and I could relate it then through the book to the readers to understand. And that's fascinating too, because like, you know, just people don't think of safety in those the, those realms. So I have the time again to to go and find the people who were the leaders in the field and schedule appointments and, and read through their materials and have notes ahead of time for them. That's very important for me. If I was gonna do it, I would do it. I was gonna do it right, you know, to become an expert. I wasn't gonna have this as a side, um, uh, cert- not, not certification, but kind of a side degree. You know, people go back to school and and admire people for doing that. But I needed, if I was going to really be what I wanted to be, it was kind of like, you know, the national leader or one of the national leaders in this. This was the route that I needed to take. And family was very supportive of that too. So
1: let's go back to then that decision that you de- that you made to go after a PhD, because that's not a decision that, you know, you can <laughs> just make on a whim, right? Because there's a lot right. of, work invested in that. And then there's also some PhD programs that don't allow you to do work or to work while you're doing the PhD program. So can you, can you just talk us through how you made that decision with your family and what are the things that you took into consideration before taking the leap going into the PhD program?
2: Right. So I, um, I knew I wanted to attend UW-Madison. They were ranked number one in the world in educational leadership and policy analysis. So I would be working with the people who are writing the textbooks for everybody else. And um, so, but with that, as as you indicated, um, there are significant sacrifices because the, the time commitment and the accuracy of what you do is held to a very high threshold, which I'm glad. Um, and I actually had to <laughs> i I pledged and was accepted to a frat at like age, I don't know, forty to get into UW Matt as one of my things because you had to show that you were involved in this community and, and in and in the university community, and I'm like, i'm I'm forty. Like what do I um so I found this, and it was funny because the frats uh, person said, um. Well, I'm not saying no, but like we've never had someone your age apply before. It was an academic frat, and and so I kind of explained the situation, and and it did work out. But it was funny. It was that part, of, and I'm like, I get it. Like I get it, but I don't know how else. And I I would I didn't really do much with the with the the frat, but um, but yeah, UW Madison, um, yeah, to make that decision, it was clearly go big or go home, and I wanted to to go where that that's something today no one asked me for a resume um they 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 don't i mean once you come out of madison once you've been on public tv and some of these things they know you and that was that that that's just um the the credibility i knew coming out of that so yeah as a family we knew that it was it was a leap of faith i knew i was was talented i knew i would put in the time but it was also uh it was very challenging because writing a dissertation is significantly different than being a school administrator when you're writing more or less concise things with bullet points to get out to people. So as I started to write the dissertation, which was maybe about 160 pages, now my book is 204, totally different styles, but um, I had never written in that style before, and I struggled with it. And I knew it was a good writer because I have been published in a number of journals, I have numerous articles um, out there. And um, suddenly I was just, it wasn't happening. And I remember, um, I, I mean, I had the content, I had everything down, but then to put it in the, this, this format of of a research paper of, of this magnitude. And I remember my advisor saying, you know, maybe you should check out the writing lab. And I'm thinking <laughs> the writing lab. PhD student. Like, I have two. I have two masters and I'm going for a PhD <laughs> yeah. and, and I've written and it, and it was really a humbling. And, um, you know, I come, I came home and I went out for like a run that night and I was just like gritting my teeth. I'm like writing lab, you gotta be kidding. Um, but yeah, I went to the, to the writing lab. You and sucked it up
1: and I, you went to the writing lab. <laughs>
2: that's good. I did. And, And I remember I walked across campus, so UW Madison, 43,000 students. And it was, it was a night in January and, um, there was a snowstorm and and there was snow just whipping past me and there's nobody else out. Like I'm walking across campus and it was this moment of just solitude and, and just like, should I, should I do this or not? Like, should I really? And I got in and into the writing lab and, the person who was I had set this appointment up with, they were wonderful. Like, just said, "Yeah, this is an uncommon, so like, um, it's a different way of writing." So, started to show me, "Here's how you set this up and some transitions," and then it started to click. Like, I started to have it, and um, but again, that w- that was a tough point because you have to take your ego and step it back because I I, I that was that was hard to hear, um, and so I did the dissertation. And actually when I did the dissertation defense, um, I, (laughs) this is, this is a fascinating story. (laughs) So you can bring somebody with you and my priest came along with me. Now he's a good friend, but he also, so, and and he brings in typically for a dissertation. So you have four or five professors in the room and then you are, you're giving your presentation of your findings after like two years of intense research. And, um, they either pass it or they don't. So, you know, he, my, my priest is there some thinking he's a good guy. Plus like, so I've got, I've got the spiritual angle working for me, the good energy in this room. And, uh, and within, you know, 10 minutes, like, um, they shut my presentation down and they said, Nope, like this, um, you know, we're, we'll, we'll let you know what, what you have to change. And, and that was it. And that was supposed to be like a two hour process. And I was just stunned. I I was just completely stunned. And and I said to, to my friend, um, you know, the priest who was there, I said, I afterwards, I'm like, I didn't think you'd have to administer the last rites to me. I didn't expect to come in here and get, get pummeled. I mean, and what I did is I, I, I made two mistakes learning mistakes. One is, um, there had been a school shooting the day before and I decided I was going to incorporate that into my presentation to kind of give examples to make it real like this is. And that was a mistake because it wasn't part of the study. It really had no place being in there. And the second one was um, I didn't go deep enough into theories. Like I really wrote well about what I was doing, but I didn't get into the theories. And I remember meeting with my advisor afterwards and he said, because he, he he thought it would it would go much better than it did. But I was glad, actually, that it went the way that it did um, because he met afterwards and he said, well, the committee was also thinking you could just call some of these people who are ex- experts in the field of, of situational awareness um, and distributed learning. I mean, they're out there. They're at universities. So just get a hold of them. Tell them what you're doing. And instead of quoting them in a paper from five years ago, like get them on the phone and quote them right now with some of your stuff. And I did that. Like I tracked these people down and they were more than willing to share information and give some reflection. And then I came back and and it went smooth. Then it was all together. And I understood. And that's something that's I'm glad it went that way, because now when I do research and as I as I became an expert witness, I know to anchor everything down into um the existing existing data, multiple data points, research, and also get on the phone and call these people. I mean, you think they're unreachable. Um, Danny Woodburn wrote the forward for my book, and Danny Woodburn is for people that don't know. Uh, one, he he's he's a, tr- a tremendous actor. He played Mickey Abbott in Seinfeld. People might remember him from there, and so many um, you know other other media appearances. But he's also an advocate for people with disabilities, and spends the you know splits his time between those two um, you know, aspects. So he, I mean, he became a friend of mine at at a conference and we built up a friendship and it, it was also where I could speak and kind of bounce ideas off of him. He's done, you know, much for inclusion. We talked about with disabilities, accessibility, he sees it from a different world in Hollywood, but he's also seeing some of the same things like, yeah, I remember like casting calls where, you know, there weren't any elevators. You might be on a second floor of a building and things like this and accessibility and not also being excluded from things. And in the book, the theme, uh, one of the themes too is if you have a disability or special need, you could be excluded from safety uh, to some, uh, to some level. So Danny and I had a, a good partnership that built and it was all, you know, to, you know, you get to know someone and then you know them on a first name basis. You can call them and, um, but I had, I have so many people that I can just pick up the phone and call. And before I went to UW Madison, I would have only learned about these people through their research. Like I would have followed them or read their articles and you don't realize they're actual people. And it's, it's, it's funny. We're talking about this. Somebody um, saw my latest PBS presentation, which you know, and, and they sent me an email on a weekend and said from florida and said um is is there any way i can talk to you because i i do some school safety in a district down here and i said yeah yeah like you know and i actually said i've got time like right now like you can call me now or whatever and like here's the number so the person calls and the first thing they said is i can't believe like i'm actually talking with you (laughs) (laughs) i can't believe this like i've seen your stuff i've seen yeah i i'm just like so we had this you know kind of minute and i'm like." and then I realized I was, that was, that was me, you know, a while sure. ago. And by me sharing with this person, because they, they were talking about how they wanted to introduce learning objectives into their district, I was passing forward what had been passed forward to me by the generosity of Dr. Paul Rapp, uh, Steve Kastner, you know, NASA Top Gun, um, and, and so many people who contributed into my books and into my podcast, James Sibley, Bart, Barta, things like that. So um, so I realized, yeah, at that moment, it was, um, it, it, I had become what other people had become to me in helping me elevate to this level in school safety. Really amazing, really amazing story. Yeah, and
1: so just to kind of wrap up this segment here, uh, just so people know, so what was your thesis for your dissertation? What what, what was it that you were defending?
2: So, so the actual thesis um, was comparing. Um, elementary schools and multiple school districts in Wisconsin on how the principals determined um, how school safety would be interpreted and implemented in their settings. So when I talk about, you know, military healthcare and education, that was strong in the lit review. So I spent a lot of time there, but the actual thesis was comparing how administrators use discretion. Um, and yeah, what, key, what what factors into that bias, experience on the job? Um, was there any tendency if you were a male versus a female? Um, you know, if it was a, a large urban district versus rural, rural and things like that. So um, and were
1: you required to postulate a hypothesis or no?
2: I was. And I uh, the hypothesis was that in a larger um, district, so, one was in a larger district, this um, that school safety would be much more formalized. and principals would you'd have inter-rater liability. So, uh, if you have eight elementary schools, each principal would largely be, be doing the same thing. And then um also, the longer that you were on the job, um, that you would be more closely adhered to the the policy, that you wouldn't be um, introducing a lot of your own discretion on interpreting it. And actually, both of those were false. Like they didn't prove, they didn't prove out. Um, what actually happened was, if you the principals, um, it didn't matter if they were in an urban district or rural. They were very different one from another on how they interpreted policy. And experience um, didn't play into it either. If you had been there, um, you know, fifteen years versus had you had you been there two years, it seemed they were more. They knew what they could. Whether bounds were with the superintendent. And superintendents change every two to three years. So basically, the principles I learned were just if they lasted longer than that, they would just recalibrate to the threshold of the new superintendent. If the superintendent would allow them to exercise a lot of discretion, they would go for it. If the superintendent was very strict, then they would just, you know, they would always kind of just align to what the superintendent was. but but yeah, some I mean, amazing people but the range of interpretation. Um, and I also, I, and this was this was also honing my skills for expert legal witness work, which came after that, where I could start to analyze and say, well, here's a principal who exercised way too much discretion and didn't document anything, just kind of handled something, you know, a student made a threat, so brought them in and talked to them, but no record of talking to them, what they talked about, communication with the uh, parent. so. Um, so that all of these things, as you kind of indicated in my past, um, morphed me to, to really, when I took on that expert witness role to be super efficient at it beyond, I mean, even the attorneys would say, you're just so good
1: at this. (laughs) Right. And, and that seems to be the final piece of the puzzle, just looking at, you know, from your early childhood to now, and then, you know, your academic career, as well as your professional career it kind of just wraps it all together. And, you know, in the next segment here, when we get back and we're going to talk about kind of what your qualifications are as your expertise now, you know, being launched off of the PhD, um, and then we'll get into a little bit of the discussion about the book. So
0: we'll be back in a few minutes. A must read for parents, teachers, and taxpayers. Dr. David Perodin has written the most honest book about the $3 billion school safety industrial complex. Attorney James Sibley proclaims, a brave demonstration of speaking truth to power. School of Errors rips the lid off the billion-dollar school safety industry. Using real-world examples of successful responses in desperate situations, David contrasts the expensive window dressings pitched to panic parents with the inexpensive and effective approaches proven to actually work. Read this book before you let your school waste another precious dollar on meaningless safety theater. By the international bestseller, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America, now at Barnes & Noble or Amazon.
1: Let's give the audience um, a little bit of background about your expertise. You know, we've walked them through kind of your childhood, adolescence, um, the beginning of your school career, uh, your education, your academic career, and now you've obtained, obtained your PhD. And so once you've obtained your PhD, I'm sure you started getting calls for, you know, taking advantage of your expertise and, and some of the things that you've done, um, outside of your, your your school, school administration career and outside of your academic career. What are some of the other things that you've done, you know, to help in this area?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, the PhD, definitely the credential set of being out of UW-Madison, um, is recognized. And, and, but when I, it was uh, May 22nd, 2013. So it was while I was in the midst of, of, of obtaining my PhD, um, I did a presentation on public television, schools, um, school security in America and, and safety preparedness, um, And I did that following the December 2012 uh, Sandy Hook School Massacre. And I had approached PBS and said, I am studying this as part of my Ph.D. program. And you don't have a presentation on your um, website and your programming that has to do with school safety. And I think I could deliver that for you and also rhetoric free. So it would be empirical, meaning it's facts, it's research. And that I could get into that, and so so that's totally totally where I was. Um, I I gave this presentation May twenty second two thousand thirteen. It's still around. I mean, and people watch it. It gets put in the programming, um, typically after Sentinel um, School Safety events and different you know PBS affiliates. But it was coupling my PhD to that that really gave the credentials of okay this this guy has his PhD in school safety generally well i mean high stakes decision making by focus on schools there isn't a place you can go to get a phd in school safety it's not a degree um, but then also i had been on pbs so then i had kind of these two things that came together so like okay and at that point the lawyers um, who were looking for expert witnesses in a student wrongful death case um, they would go and in and they started to find out who I was. I mean, just through, and I had, um, I, you know, articles I had written, the PB, PBS presentation, the PhD, and do a little research and say, Hey, you know, it, would you consider being an expert witness in this case? And I actually joined, um, an organization that now serves, um, to, to be the the kind of the broker for me. I mean, they, they filter out, they have, I make people go through this, third-party organization, and then they vet them and make sure. Um, because otherwise, I, I just don't know if, you know, when you get these requests, you need to make sure that you have a reputable attorney that you're working with and things like that. So so I started to get a lot of requests. And the first time I received a request, um, the the law firm... Eventually, we, we were discussing some points of the case, and they, say, they send you a summary. It's, it's typical. It's like three or four pages. They take the entire case and boil it down, and you have to make sure you don't have any um, conflicted interests. And that's why I never did anything in Wisconsin because I just knew too many people here. Mm. Um, but I, I do other states. And at the end, they said, well, how much do you charge? And I thought, I have no idea. <laughs> I've never done this before. I have no framework. Really? I'm like, I wasn't planning on getting into the expert witness world, um, it just kind of knocked on my door. So I quickly changed the narrative and said, well, you know, I need to analyze everything case by case and the nuances of the case and and just provide me the information. Mm -hmm. Give me 48 hours. I'll get back to you. So, of course, (laughs) Google, I'm contacting every lawyer that I know. (laughs) you know, that I've worked sure. with in special education for the years and said, help me out with this. And, and, and they gave me some frameworks and said, here's typically what is charged and, and here's how you want to structure. So then I had a very nice document that I created and, and provided it back to this law firm. Um, and things went really well. So how that works too, is you're paid a retainer and it's a non-refundable retainer. So once they would bring me on board, if the case would settle or get dropped or something, um, two days later I still got to, to keep the retainer, and then you you always you, once the retainer would be gone, you would ask for another like five hours, and they would have to pay me in advance, and you work up to five hours. So it's one of, it's a misconception too. People always think when you're an expert witness that you get a a cut of the final settlement, and that's not accurate. Um, but it is it's extremely lucrative, though, if you are um, able to look at the inside of school operations and policies and procedures and how they're implemented and how new staff get trained on things. Um, and then also to um, understand the kind of the the safety side of things, obviously, like how instant command system work and where it works. and police and fire and all that. So I, I kind of, I, I knew all of that, especially knew the school side really good. So um, I could also, th- this actually happened with one of the the law firms working with me. So they'll ask one, do you think this is a case that our approach, um, and, and we would have different Skype meetings and things like that. Do you, do you think the approach is appropriate that we're taking? And I'd be, be honest and say, you know, either yes or no, or here's how I'd change it. And Sometimes if they, they didn't like what I said, that OK, fine, here's your we'll pay you out and we'll go somebody mm-hmm. else. And I was always ethical sure. about it, too. Um, but we would we would go through and I I remember one time it was um, it was a larger district and it was a wrongful death. And the school handbook, one of my arguments was that the school handbook um, wasn't didn't cover um, student safety and th- harm to self harm to others, or, you know, like a suicide risk. And so, but this was more of a hearsay that the attorney was bringing forward to me. So I said, well, we need to get one of these. So can you put it, um, so they can do what's called a deposition. Now I had to learn all these terms sure. too, right? You know, so I have to take things. like, you know, I have to, I have to go intense on, on law on my own to, to figure this out of you know what's a deposition. And what, what is a Bates numbering system? Like every single document, I literally have 17,000 pages in one court case in a room next to me um, right now um, that have been mailed to me and everyone has its own number on it. So as I'm writing my expert witness report, I can go back and reference each document and then also reference like each line has its own line. So it might be, you know, document 123, page 17, line four. So I'm like, whoa. Um, but... But yeah, so I, so going back this, this handbook, um, the district wouldn't provide the handbook to the attorney. And I said, there's something wrong with that. Like every district has its handbook, obviously, in electronic format, or they have extras because kids move in. It's not like, you know, the first day of the school year, here's our kids for the year, we have nobody else coming. And so I'm like, there's something, that's a red flag. So I said, put an ad in the paper. If they're not gonna give it to you, put an ad in the paper and say, Um, we want the handbooks from these years and do like two years before this event, two years after the event, and we'll see um, also what had changed in the handbooks, if anything changed. And that was, it worked. I mean, it was fascinating, the work around with the district. And also I think that deteriorated in the judge's eyes, the integrity of the, the district, that the district wasn't willing to do that, that this was a reasonable request for the district, but they were stalling, their legal was buying time. So I said, something's wrong. And I did find things definitely in the handbook to indicate that they had a change in procedure, but also changing change in procedure that wasn't linked to policy. So after this um, wrongful death happened, things changed, but they didn't necessarily change the policy. And so, I mean, it, it was it was all these things. I mean, for me to look, it it was right there in front of me because I had done this for so long. And I said, when had people been when had people been trained? and asked for the records and who attended the training and the materials and stuff like that. So I, I and the more I did it, just the better I got at it. And um, having to write those reports, um, I had no problem, even though it might be a 130 page report. And also for an expert witness, I didn't know this, but it's, so you're basically working with your attorney. Um, so I would, I only work for plaintiffs, which was an interesting position too, because I had been a school guy. And I wasn't representing the schools; I was representing the people going after the schools. Um, uh, you know, so yeah, putting putting that different um, position. But you know, just wow. I mean, as as you know, an, an expert witness, um, like I said, getting getting to see the how how, especially turnover. You know, people weren't trained in school safety. And and the safety procedures or it would just be like, hey, you know, read the handbook or or, you know, read the policy. And it's like, well, that's passive and no one's going to do that. And policies maybe haven't been updated. So so you took what um, you
1: learned from being an expert witness and getting access to some of these documents from other school districts around the country uh, that helped you kind of refine your focus on, you know, and and calibrate how um, the document should be created for a school system, especially the one you were working in. Right.
2: It did. And and I I was doing a dual role because I do that. And I'd also serve as a school consultant for um, some districts and also for some government agencies. So I could say right now in the field, this is what's happening. And I'm teaching, you know, also at a university level to administrators and saying, this is what I'm seeing right now. So this is what you need to prepare for. And and I'm going to help you with that. So I also had a foot in both camps. So I, I, I knew what was happening or I could even run things past my university students saying, you know, would you do let me put this as a scenario, of course, you know, not that it would be closely tied to anything that could be identified to a legal case, but um and get feedback from them. what What are you considering in making this decision? So, yeah, um, all of those things came together uh, really to to improve me as an expert witness, improve me as a consultant and as a university instructor. Mm-hmm. So kind of iron sharpens iron. I had that happening in my career. Everything was just sparks. It was just crazy. Nice.
1: So that all brings us to the decision to write a book, right? School yeah, of Errors, yeah. which is why we're here today. So let's let's uh, let's go into the take us to the moment when School of Errors became a possibility in your mind.
2: Absolutely. So um, I was contacted by a, a an editor from a publishing house, Roman and Littlefield, my publisher and um, I had written an article for School uh, Business Affairs International. Uh, I have written many articles on school safety. I don't know what the the core of this article was, but um, it happened that the editor for the magazine knew the editor for the publishing house and said, you know, this, this this guy could write a book on this, and there really isn't anything out there, and people keep asking us, you know, as a magazine, a professional organization, do more on school safety. So um, he contacts me from the publishing house and said, have you ever thought about writing a book? And I said, no, not really. Um, I haven't and said, well, here's what we would need. And which was intense, took me a few months. It's like a 16 page proposal. And you had to read books that would be similar in the field, how your your book would be different, who it would appeal to, um, why people would want to read a book that you wrote, what was so special about you. So, I put that together and submitted it and um and they loved it. They said, "Yeah, go ahead and and write this." Um, so the, I, I dove into it like I was just writing like crazy. And what I was doing, though, I was writing a lot from my own experience as a first person kind of and initially, I submitted it, and they said, yeah this is this is interesting, but it's like a memoir. We need you to to step back and to Um, you know, include maybe more interviews of people or, you know, for example, you should only be using first person at the beginning of the book in the preface and then at the end in the epilogue and the rest of the book should all be third person. So, um, and I, that was hard for me because I'm a very anecdotal person. I tell things through stories. So I had to tell things through people's stories that, and that actually, I think, brought a lot more richness to the book and so as I'm going through, I'm reformulating, the, you know, how how I'm going to get this information. So I'm reaching out to like a drone expert who's my neighbor, two two blocks away, commercial drone. This is what he does. He works with power companies, so he goes up and then he gets video footage so they can inspect like their windmills or their turbines and stuff. And um, so I said I have a section here where we're going to talk about like drones in the book, and so. Can you also, like, we'll make a podcast out of it for one. Um, And so, yeah, he took me out, showed me how the drones work, and then search and rescue with a drone. How does that work if you're doing, like, a student with autism wonders from a school so I could actually get to see these things, could interview him as a certified commercial drone operator. I I got to meet Katie Pashan out of Cajun Navy Relief. Katie was in her her 20s and had had become a dispatcher for Cajun Navy Relief. Which is, um, you know, largely a group with pickup trucks, pulling all kinds of boats, um, and they're they're going into flooded areas. And Texas was one, you know, the Houston general Houston area after the Hurricane Irma Harvey. And she's telling me how these communication systems work, like using the app Zello, all of the things that I want to write about in the book. Um, so this is just amazing for me to get this information from, you know, her and. Um, Talking with uh, Kevin Sullivan, who was an Iraqi war vet, Kevin was on a tarmac, and all of a sudden, uh, bombing started. and he he gave this brilliant account of what it was like. He said, at first, I thought somebody was backing into a dumpster. And then I thought, oh my goodness, like I'm in Iraq. we're being bombed. Should I Should I pull out my gun? Well, what am i what can I do? I, where do I need to go? Like I need to go back to my plane, but what are we going to do? We can't go down the runway. And so he just runs through this whole series of chaos. So I, I was getting great information from people. Like they were they were sharing this, Dr. Paul Rapp and um I Paul Varian, who who'd been in communications for like 40 years, and done communications at Super Bowl, stuff like this. So had all this information coming in, and then I needed to figure out how to put it together. And I worked with um also Ann Sterzinger, and Ann is an author. And, um, she helped me, um, keep, uh, assemble all of this in a very long longitudinal pattern. She, part of what I was afraid of doing was writing something that was like right now. So people would be relevant for like this year, next year, then it's like old news. And, um, you know, with Anne's writing, you know, being an author and, and an editor, she goes all the way back and was saying, well, you know, really look at social contract theory and let, let's, let's take this back to, you know, four or 500 years of looking at what safety and just, you know, look like back then and we'll, we'll bring it up and then it's, you know, it'd be relevant. And the other part, too, was everybody that writes in school safety writes in a friendly, positive, uplifting manner. And I was I wanted to have a little bit of a black pill or a, a bit of a biting sarcasm to the book, because um, the. When I was writing the book, I feel there's a lot of things that are wrong in the industry because the industry has become um, filled with marketers and vendors and and people not taking the time to do their research. So we have a $3 billion fortification industry, all these things that are being sold, window films, bulletproof igloo, stuff like that to schools. And saying this this is getting way away from what really makes schools safe. And the fact that I, I, I'm going to call people out on this. I'm going to call out the industry and say, it's going in the wrong direction, um, but that's a dangerous move because once you write a book like that and take that position, you'll you'll have some people in your camp. And I, I know there's a lot of people that believe that, but they won't say anything. And my superintendents at the time that I was teaching, they're finishing up their degrees. They said, "Yeah, I could never say anything like this because I'd lose my job. It's a district of 300 kids. It's a small community. If I'm not on board with using you know safety grant dollars to get fencing," Instead of improving our two-way radios, yeah, I mean, people can see fencing; they're not going to see the the radio. So I, so I was I, I went out on a limb. I mean, to write this and to take this position of saying, "Hey, uh, what we're doing is is crazy, and all, we can't fortify our way to safety." Here's here's an article about a a teenager uh, who climbed the World Trade Center while it was you know being built, went up to the top, and how does that happen? I mean, how does? But every day, like things like this happen so, yeah, I so Anne definitely kept um kept the edginess because every time I, I we we kind of met in the middle because she would go very edgy, I would kind of be at the, the, this more accommodating soft position um of, of of friendliness and and we kept it so it does have this biting as as you read it, I mean it it definitely it's informative, has a lot of anecdotes, but it goes right after for example, the professional educator standards um. And 30 pages, 10 pages are just, they, it starts out here, here are all the people that contributed to this document. And I'm like, that's, that's embarrassing. That's a shame. I mean, cause it's all lofty language and it doesn't help you at all with safety. And I went through it. There wasn't anything about safety. And it was a third draft since like Columbine. How do you not have safety in your professional educator standards, which then the universities are supposed to calibrate to when they put their programs together. So I just, I called them out. I mean, it was very direct. And But I I had some motivation for that. There was a book um, by Lawrence Kuttner, Grand Theft Childhood, that came out after um, people thought video games were the cause of of students being violent and things like that. So Lawrence Kuttner with Harvard, and I forget who who co-wrote with him, but wrote Grand Theft Childhood and said, no, the research does not support this. Um, And and put it pretty much put an end to that dialogue people were were no longer being called in to testify before congress about their video games and if we think about it hector i mean i'm in wisconsin when i grew up people in my high school actually had you know rifles and shotguns on their gun rack in their pickup truck you know that was a thing like in wayne's world remember the gun rack that wayne got like that was common like every place you went and, and we have a deer hunting, you know, it's a hunting state deer hunting and stuff like that. But I mean, it didn't mean because that that was translating into my classmates being um, at a higher risk to bring harm to their school or others. So cut Lawrence Kuttner's book. Really? um, I I said, well, if he can do it, maybe I can do this with school of airs. Like maybe I can turn the tide and make people realize, Hey, we spend you know, 80 percent of every dollar on fortification devices, window films, uh, bollards that, you know, those those kind of tusk type things that go into sidewalks in front of schools and stuff like that and security guards, whatever. But we spend very little on threat detection. We spend a fraction of of one percent, less than one percent on research. So like, let's turn this around. So I, I write about this and also like it wasn't a solution book. I knew right away, like there, I'm I'm going to educate people and bring them. Into perspectives they'd never been before, like looking at through simulated annealing, through chaos theory, through transference dynamic. Um, One of the things Paul Rapp said to me as I put this book together, he said, Dave, when you look at the harbor rescue in New York, 500,000 people in nine hours on September 11, 2001 were rescued. Biggest um, naval or or biggest, biggest water rescue ever. Most of those boats were tugboats, the majority, and, and, you know, sightseeing boats and just civilian boats, a handful, you know, between fire, police and things like that. But they had never practiced before. Like, how did the system come together? Organizational theorists would say you could never do this. Like, you could never swap out, make a vehicle from a Ford motor, a Mercedes suspension, you know and you know a chassis of a nissan like this would never work they weren't designed together this can't work and yet like that totally worked that's exactly what happened but it also happened because the people grew up in they were average age was 40 and this is where i worked with new york city department of planning i contacted them and paul said you really need to study the people because that's the story here so so I get in with New York City of planning and they I go online. Of course, I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be horrible, like horrible to complete this paperwork. Like just because I know from the legal side to get anything like how intense that was. And but it just, you know, working, you're thinking a big city, a lot of bureaucracy. And this was
1: getting access to some information about 9-11. This, yes. yes. Right. Yeah. Yep.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, so. I I approached um, the Department of Planning and I said, I I need these documents. And also, like, I had images that I had found online and they were credited back to the city. But I said, I don't know where these were sourced out of, if they were part of an article or presentation. So they assigned me. So I put in this request and then they said, "Um, we'll get back to you within, I don't know, like three weeks. But within like a week, they got back to me. And there was one person assigned to me. Her name was Yvette. And uh, she was incredible. And, you know, the whole purpose of the book, they have to, to understand why they're working with you, and then they send you, like, a legal agreement that you're, you know, getting information for the book and the research, provided me everything that I needed. And That would track down this one image, and literally, I'm out with my family on a Friday night, and we're grocery shopping. It's 8 o'clock, okay? It's 8 o'clock, and my phone rings, and I'm like, Okay, so, you know, I'm answering it, and it's Yvette. And she said, I found the image. I found the lower Manhattan image. It isn't this document from whatever, whatever, and this. Like, I have it in a JPEG, like, high resolution. I'll send it to you, and then um, I'll get, like, a letter to go with it from our law, you know, folks, of saying that you have permission to use it. I'm like, oh, my God. Wow. Like, thank you so much. But they, I mean, everybody was so, I think— there was almost this vesting like they they really were genuine about wanting to help me and wanting to make sure that I had the right information so unbelievable experience there and and I go back and and I start looking at the the population so you know average person age 40 worked in um finance you know the the typical the majority of people rescued from lower Manhattan so Paul, uh, Dr. Rapp said, "Well, look, look at the U.S. from 1980 to 85 when these people are growing up, like their formative years. What was happening? Because that's how we perceive things down the road. The transference dynamic, how you're raised, is is how you perceive things. Um, so, uh, a couple things. One is, um, and this was amazing. So, this is in, in the book in in quite a bit of detail. You know, much more detail, and we'll get into. Very fascinating to read this though." Um, so 1980 to 85, um, you know, kind of my generation too as I was, as I was growing up, but we had uh, Ronald Reagan as president. So very much portraying the Soviet Union as the enemies. And, and this was on CNN all the time. We had the Strategic Defense Initiative, which was Star Wars where you could have um, satellites use laser beams to shoot missiles out of the sky. We had the launch of the space shuttle, our first space shuttle. Um, the Soviets had their only space shuttle, um, and it, it was um, Rocky 4 was in theaters. So you know Rocky against Drago, the protagonist of Western values versus the antagonist songs sting. Um, I hope the Russians saw their children too, Nana, 99 red balloons about NATO um, encroachment and things like that. So it was thick. Like everybody growing up believed that the Soviets were the enemies, but by doing that they believed the government would protect them. And the, if there was a disaster, the government is here to protect us. And that was just what you're taught. So 9-11, those same people now, fast forward years later, they're down there at Battery Park. And as they see these boats come in, they're thinking, this is a government rescue. The government is, we are, you know we were raised, the government is going to protect us. They're going to save us. And we need to trust the government. That was not a government rescue. The only part of that that was government was Admiral Loy of the Coast Guard gave a command saying, over maritime radio, anybody with a boat, come down and help uh, the best that you can. And that was it. N- no directions, you know, no flow charts, nothing like that. Systems developed. But people, because they saw that kind of pareidolia, like you look at the moon and it's like, are those faces? Is that cheese and stuff like that? They they manifested this rescue system just as much as the people kind of just figured out in the moment what to do. Like this boat goes here, this boat slides over here. We'll use a bed sheet. We'll write Hoboken on it to know where we're we're going. We're going to rip this door off and use it as as a gangplank to get people in. And it just worked. But it was because the people also expected this force to be there. And, you know, you go back to things like um, robbers cave experiment, you know, if that would have gone on much more than nine hours, yeah, maybe you would have people start deteriorating and fighting each other in line, like trying to get to the front, but everyone was kind of moving forward. And so it's this whole psychology, talk about it. And then I fast forward to right now and say, it's different though today. Like would, if we had a 9-11 type of event or some Sentinel event that involved a lot of students, how would they respond? And it's amazing because they'd go to their phone. We know that's the way that rescues are done. Um, we talked about I talked about Katie Pachon and Cajun Navy um, in the hurricanes. People were going to you know 2017. They're going to Facebook Messenger and they're asking, "I need help. My house is flooding." And they're not calling 911 because they they can't get through. Or the local fire department has one boat, so they can't really do anything. In this community, you know, three to five thousand is being flooded out. So you go to Facebook Messenger. Katie receives this on the other end. Um, Three hundred miles away, and then she knows where the boaters are with Cajun Navy relief. Um, she's tracking them on on some mapping software. She uses this app Zello, which was based out of Houston, still is, had fourteen people at the time, and she's it's a walkie-talkie app. And then boaters have this, and she's able to say, "Hey, like this person just messaged me. Here's where they're located. And the, they're saying their entire house is surrounded, and they just want to come get them." And that happened, independent of FEMA, independent of of local government. So you also had had this entire network of rescue that developed, this whole system developed that wasn't based on conventional thinking. Like we wouldn't think you'd do this. Um, So that's also where schools have to have this this deep look of how do you interface with um, agencies which might be civilian rescue forces? Because I think we're gonna see more of that. And we're so focused on intruders too. if there's a tornado what if there's a blackout what if there's a solar flare that takes out some of the satellites on electrical i mean we've got to be able to think on our feet for all of these things or flash floods hit your community and so that's where the book gets in with with so many stories to kind of bring this out and one of the things too is once you get done with with the book um i think it equips you for understanding yourself and i'll say that because there's something in there called Taurus theory, T-O-R-U-S. Taurus theory um, states, and, and I'm pretty liberal with my interpretation of it, but Taurus theory states basically that um, every day is similar to the past. We can kind of expect that, that you know we get up and pour a bowl of cereal and drive to work. And, and you're going to have fluctuations, you know, traffic be a little different, stuff like that. But it's kind of similar. That's your Taurus, that's what you get used to. And you have to recognize, though, when you're exiting, Your Taurus and going into chaos. So a 9/11, that was definitely a moment of of chaos. You know, for me, I was in a car accident in January, um, a serious car accident. I I realized the moment that was unfolding, I was going to go from my Taurus into chaos. Um, And then, um, so if you can recognize that you're going into chaos, you can just psychologically handle it a lot better. There are many studies that that just say if you tell people ahead of time what. To probably expect, like this is this is what would happen if there's an intruder, a tornado, if we lose power, if there's a lockdown for an extended amount of time. This is what you're probably going to expect. People handle that really well, but if if you don't take that step in school safety, it, it it's hard because people are in chaos and it's uncomfortable. They don't they don't realize they're in in chaos. They don't know how to process through it, like simulated annealing, like I like I said with the mountain, simulated annealing at nine eleven is I might take this boat to get off of Lower Manhattan to get to Hoboken, but I don't live in Hoboken. I live 50 miles away. But from if I get to Hoboken, maybe someone can give me a ride to this point or I can take a bus or I can get a hold of someone that can meet me at whatever. So all these little ways. And we do this if our airline gets tra- canceled. So you get canceled and then, okay, I, I can get on a Greyhound bus or I can take like some connecting flight. So it's it's this. But, um, but yeah, people aren't aware of... of This this uh, space between their their Taurus and chaos. And I think that's where reconnaissance, when I was growing up, you understood when you approach that much more readily. Um, And and I'm arguing strongly in the book that we return to that. Yeah.
1: And uh, one of the things that did jump out at me is how you uh, interplay situational awareness and the techniques learned through becoming situational, situationally aware and how. When you're in a moment of chaos, how that skill of being situational, situational aware uh, really helps the calm factor, right? So if you can kind of stabilize yourself in that chaos, be comfortable in that chaos as best as you can be, then you can start formulating decisions to try to get yourself out of that situation or at least protect you from whatever's going on as best you
2: can. Yeah, it, you're you're right on, Hector. Because um, once you recognize you're in chaos, then you can start to function in chaos. But when people don't recognize they're in chaos, they try to return to the Taurus. And a way a way to describe this is, uh, uh, you know, 100 years ago, movie theaters, um, movie, a number of movie theater fires. So um, people watching the movie, a fire would break out. They would they would try to go out the same way that they came in. You know, through the lobby and all of that. And um, but there might be doors at their left and right that they could have just gone out. And people try to go to self-similar, what they're aware of, instead of thinking, okay, this is chaos, what is the shortest way out? It's like, no, what was the same way that I came in to get out? So it's that part. And again, you know, I've personally been there. Um, If you can recognize that you're entering chaos, and once you're in chaos, and then stabilize yourself to a new Taurus, or your new normal, I guess, um, as fast as you can, it really is is psychologically healing and, and empowering to do that. It can be liberating once you're in Taurus. As Paul Rapp said, um, Chesty Poehler, um, I believe, received many um, military awards in his career, but he's quoted as saying, well, we're surrounded. That makes things easier. And, you know, is kind of true. I mean, once you get into highly chaotic situations, it can simplify things out. But this isn't the way that schools work though, right? Because schools will give you a three ring binder and they'll try to have you memorize. If there is an intruder, you have to do these 17 steps and things like that. So you get, you force people to be linear But in chaos, you need to be very nonlinear and very fluid in perceiving your environment, your situational awareness and what's changing second by second and what's available to me as best options. And we're taking that away from people when we do what we're doing right now of, of scripting all of this stuff right. out. This is really a bad, it's a bad way to do it. And, and
1: that, I think that's compounded by the fact that as parents, that safe radius has shrunk down so much. So uh, you kind of mentioned in the book that the kids are not naturally getting into some of those chaotic events through their exploration. Uh, because as parents, we're trying to minimize, I think, as parents, we're trying to keep them in that Taurus 100% of the time as much as possible because that's what we know, and that's the safety ring around their, you know, the radius around them. Um, and, you know, when you and I were growing up and we explored the boundaries, we we constantly pushed the boundaries, and it was almost, in a sense, trying to find that chaotic event because we were just keep pushing and keep pushing and in certain situations we found ourselves in chaotic events and that allowed us to kind of adapt to those situations but now as parents especially me as a parent and I speak for myself but I'm sure others are in the same boat is you know we try to put the, put this protective cloak around our kids and when a situation happens where they're going to be thrown into a chaos it's it's almost to the opposite end of what they're being what they are in their torus and they cannot stabilize or get comfortable in that situation and so that compounded with the fact that schools are trying to create this cookie cutter way of this is how you handle this type of event and i think you mentioned in your book also like for tornado drills you know we don't go and create fans and you know throw debris everywhere to simulate a tornado We basically have to adapt to the situation. Uh, You give general guidelines, general rules, and then, you know, you follow these general guidelines and rules. But in some cases, you're going to have to, you know, go away from those. Uh, But in for the school shooter and, you know, I've done some of those in, in the awareness podcast and just looking at how, you know, the planning or the lack of planning has gone into that. You know, even recently for some of the schools, you know, we're not teaching them, you know, to be adaptive in that way. And, um, you know, in some cases utilize technology to be adaptive. But like you mentioned, if technology goes away, which happened in 9-11, the the cell phone system kind of, you know, got inundated with calls and it kind of basically shut down. But yet people from our generation, which was mostly our generation, if not older, you know, they figured out a way to get out of that uh, safely because... It was five hundred thousand people in nine hours. You know, it is by far the largest boat evacuation in history. Second, o- or the second one coming in was Dunkirk, I believe, right in right. World War II, uh, yes. and that was three hundred and thirty nine ish thousand people, and that was done over like nine days or something like that. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, that and and to my understanding, there was nobody hurt in nine eleven in the evacuation process or there were very little incidents of report and no right. deaths, which in my mind, in that type of situation, were under attack. You know, there could have been stampedes, you know, people, you know, pushing each other to get onto these boats, to get off the Island, um, because of the panic that was happening at that time. But instead you see pictures of people helping elderly folk, you know, giving them the right of way, before them and and things like that and that leads to your transference dynamic that you were talking about so uh you know i think it's a compounding piece of or it's a how do i explain this there's a lot of different areas and how society has changed that's leading to the the harm that we could potentially be putting our kids in into the school systems with the school systems trying to enact these certain policies and procedures that may not be in line with, you know, how parents are, uh, allowing their kids to develop in this new world.
2: Yeah. And I agree with everything that you, that you said, Hector, and, and something that has, uh, you know, come on the scene with schools, um, are these virtual reality field trips. So, you know, when we talk about transference dynamic, um, you know, there are districts now who are saying you can't go to D.C. or New York or any of these places because, uh, or not districts, but, you know, parents are saying we don't want our eighth grader to go there. It's too dangerous. So we'll swap out the virtual reality field trip in the gymnasium. Well, a couple problems with that. One is um, you you now are conveying the message to your child. The world is dangerous and we can't safely equip you, even with adult chaperones during daytime in these you know sites which have been, you know, interface with tourists and in kids for years. Like we can't even we can't do that. We can't keep you safe. So you're this is the transference that they're getting. World is, is dangerous. Um, I've got to to limit my own reconnaissance um, as much as possible and stay very close to my my tourists and my roam zone. Um, the other part is is positionality, right? So if um, someone is hired, if they've hired Carol to do the DC virtual reality trip, maybe she's been there one time and you're just getting this experience from Carol, instead of 40 kids going and getting this unique experience on their own or little groups of kids, or they go off and do something, um, you know, in, in, in one area, they branch off and, and just in stuff that people they are interacting with that day, things that they're seeing stuff that they can touch, feel it's all gone. And, in instead of, of perceiving your environment, you're getting a perception of the environment from someone else imposed upon you. So, um, it, these are some horrible things, and it's it's a part of again, the safety industry is is preying upon this because you could say a virtual reality field trip would cost less than going to d c. Like if you live in Wisconsin, you could and that'd be true. like it would you wouldn't have to pay for uh, transportation lodging stuff. But that's not how they market it. They said it's all about safety. We can keep you safer. So yeah, we we are we are sending this message that de- the world is dangerous. Don't do reconnaissance. Don't even touch that outside of your Taurus, where chaos might exist. And we will we will keep you safe. So what that looks like down the road when we
0: actually do have a sentinel event, I I don't know. Thank you for tuning in to the Safety Doc Podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Doctor David Perodin author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen now back to Dr. David Perotin and the safety doc podcast.
1: So as we wrap up, doc, a couple questions as we bring this episode to a close, who's the target audience for the book?
2: One is um, I think it has general appeal to everybody. But if you're a parent, obviously you need to read this book because uh, you need to understand the de- de- deterioration of the Rome zone of reconnaissance of what that is doing to your child. And it's probably you won't realize it until you're reading through this and, and start to benchmark back to your own life and say, yeah, like when I was growing up, I was able to do these things or my my grandparents and stuff like that. And, um, you know, certainly educators, because with educators, it is the one book where they can hold it up when they're alone in their room and say, thank you, I'm not alone. Like book, you and I are aligned together. Um, And it is I I find this a lot. I found this after I presented on public television. Uh, People would came up to me from the audience afterwards and said, "I, I feel exactly the same way that that we we've, you know, kind of gone over the top with hyper-realistic drills and some of these other things in school safety and want to bring back sensibility and more situational awareness. How do I do it? And I'm like, the book will help you understand the narratives of how to introduce things. Just like you said, why would you do an, an intruder drill that might be hyper or a tornado drill with, um, you know, putting pellets or gravel into a fan to, to make it realistic? Well, you wouldn't. Like, you, you would talk about how to do this and, and practice it. Um, and it's this whole thing of learning objectives, introducing learning objectives. So I'm really into that. Um, but, yeah, that's that's the takeaway. You know, it's going to be parents. And we have 55 million students attending school every day. So that's a huge group of parents. And also parents need to the questions. Um, if my child's in a portable building, we have thousands of those. Virtually no regulations. It's the lowest bidder um so they don't have the same security systems if they're preschool community sites in my own district right here i, I spoke with the superintendent a few weeks ago as they're elevating their safety and that's an area they're focusing in um, how to make sure that they're informing their community preschool sites if there is a uh, you know some type of emergency at a district that all of the buildings are aware of it um, so these these are things that people just don't think. Of. What about online classes, students taking courses all online or part online, half in the school? Well, what if they miss the day that you have your intruder or fire drills because those are days they're home? So helping people, uh, parents think about that, educators think about that. And I think taxpayers have a vested interest in this because we cannot sustain a system where we're spending $3 billion, it could be up to $5 billion a year, and it's escalating. On things that just aren't making us safer, we have the same frequency of shooting, and we still have Parkland, Santa Fe, uh, STEM shooting. These type of things are happening, so um, it's not effective. So if we're, it's going to get to a point, get to be a point where you're going to really start to erode the money going into academic uh, areas of education for fortif- and it's going to be going to fortification instead. Meaning the kids aren't just, they're not going to receive the level of, you know, reading mathematics, language arts, all that, that they should. And that's happening. I mean, districts are having to make that choice. So it's it's that whole call, but, you know, to, to everybody for awareness. But again, if if people have read the book, I've read the book, and I, I, I'm i always, I read it cover to cover. I, I, I'm excited when I read it. I think it helps every single person that reads it um, understand, again, that self-similarity and Also be skeptical and the right questions to ask about what's happening in my environment, any safe, any situation that I'm in, whether I'm in a workplace, you know, or whether, yeah, I'm with my kids at some activity or they have some school safety drills. What are some questions that I can ask? And if you're a parent with a student with a disability, so we have about 8 million students um, in the U.S., you need to read this book um, because... There is a trend right now for students with disabilities to be exempted from safety drills. And um, I have an article that will be in Cap-in, a Phi Delta in journal. They're featuring this, an article I wrote later this, this year will be in one of the um, issues. Um, I talked with attorney James Sibley. He was on my podcast. But this is, this is happening. Parents will call me and say they had a drill today, an intruder drill, and my child, my Child with autism came home and I didn't he didn't say anything about it. We got a notice from the school said, Hey, we're just doing a follow-up email to everybody. There was an intruder drill today. So if your child has any questions, so they go to their child. This actually happened. And parents um went to their child and said, Tell me about the drill. And child said, Um, what? I just went into the library, I watched a movie, and nothing else happened at school today. So they approached the school and said, You have to include my child in safety drills. I mean, what if anything happen or also lifelong? What if he's 22, 25 and something happens? He needs to be able to understand if a fire alarm sounds or understand who to ask for help or things, you know, interacting with police. So yeah, I I think this becomes an automatic resource for parents of students with disabilities to be aware of this trend and also to give them the language to use with their school to open up those discussions.
1: And last question, Doc. Where did the name School of Errors come from? Okay. <laughs> let's, let's get that question answered.
2: Yeah, it, it actually came from Sean Dickers. Dr. Sean Dickers um, it, it was one of my member checks for the book. And I, Lessons of Lore Manhattan was the original title, uh, working title, right up until the end. And the publisher said... The thing with Lessons of Lower Manhattan, it's it's too regional, right? It's Manhattan. So if someone's in California or Florida, and it kind of sounds a little bit like a novel, right? Lessons of Lower Manhattan. So um, we want you to, to, to come up with some different titles. So they had some titles that they put forward. And I went to some of my member checks and said, I need some ideas for titles. Because at that time, I just need the book to get done, right? Because this is a long process. And I'm like, title? Um, so School of Airs. Sean Dickers said, well, this is, uh, why not this? It's a playoff of Shakespeare's Comedy of Errors, which Comedy of Errors talks about people who know better but are, are making ridiculous decisions. And, and it is, it has um, you a know, comedic feel to it. And he's like, you know, this is kind of, we, we know better in school safety and we're still making these crazy decisions. So School of Errors, rethinking school safety in America. So um, had that and put it forward and the publisher, they ran it by some test markets and said, yep, this this is great. Like this, people um, will, will will identify this, and and also it plays really well off of kind of that that second step with Shakespeare, and yeah. So that's how that's how School of Airs uh, came to be. It's supposed to be lessons of Lower Manhattan, and there still is uh, there are a few threads in there where you can see the strong ties um, of Manhattan because there's so much influence of of 9/11 in Lower Manhattan, you know, throughout the book and with that we'll
1: close Uh, doc thanks again for allowing me to do this with you and uh, good luck on the book and anybody listening uh, as a parent i've learned so many things from reading just the draft that uh, the doc sent me and i there were not just lessons about school safety and safety in general but also lessons that you can take you know in your personal lives as a parent and so get the book it's it should be out now and where can they get the book doc
2: Sure, of course, Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, uh, Target, and you know Roman is my publisher, but it, it won't be hard at all, you know, to find the book through any of your traditional uh, sites. Uh, this is a book that's it's nonfiction. It's received a lot of attention from libraries, and it also has strong international sales, um, which just means that you know I, I think it's it, you're going to see this in, in also a lot of your local libraries, and um, universities are, are picking up this book too. So. Um, yeah, but you'll have no problem. Amazon or, or Barnes and Noble, your place of choice, uh, you'll be able to and get And as them. always,
1: the show notes should have the links to the books. So go there for a quick and easy way to get access to those books. Thanks again. And, uh, we'll talk to you soon.
2: Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Hector.
0: This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Perotin. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Perotin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.